Amaz? So I suppose, um, not for our benefit, but for the benefit of people listening, we ought to say how, how we know each other. Um, <laughs> so actually, I think, I think the initial point of contact was probably Alison Dyke, who, who um, mm. for some reason we, we both knew. Alison being distinguished by having a PhD in foraging, really, for want of a better term. Good title. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a lengthy, uh, real. The real title is a lengthy one, but it's all about wild harvest, Scottish wild harvest, and the potential. Um, um, I think I think there are two PhDs like that. Um, I think there was someone that used to work at the uh, economic botany department at Kew who also had a PhD of a similar nature. Um, That's true. Yeah, you're aware of that, Helen Saunders? Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, when I was at the Countryside Agency, I think we sponsored the book they produced, Nature's yeah. Harvest. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I knew it from that. Yeah, so two people with PhDs in foraging, it's great. Um, but really, <laughs> yeah, it's amazing because both of them, I think, were sort of mapping out the territory to a certain extent. And like 15 years on or, or so, um, only a small, very small portion of that territory is anyone actually occupying now. I think there's, mm. there's, there's mm. a load of stuff that could be forming the basis for lots of little rural businesses um, and isn't, you know, um, because, because, because we have um, the powers that be, it's not all down to the powers that be, but like the powers that be in Finland, which I know you're going to talk about in a minute. Um, the powers that be in Finland, they have amazing stuff. Like we had the lady on the podcast um, who, who, who runs a, uh, a school of foraging, for want of a better term, in, in Lapland, like to, 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 to support people to develop businesses around wild plants. Government funded. Amazing. So we're a little yeah, way um, off that here. Yeah. And uh, Finland will buy any produce that you find in the wild that is in excess of your normal domestic requirements. So there's always a market in Finland, which is promoted by the state. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. So much, much more in line, but we'll, 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 we'll dig more into Finland. So anyway, Alison introduced us, but I think, I can't remember how it started, but I was having a conundrum with, with Natural England to trying to ban us from picking sea kale mm. um, down at Dungeness in, in Kent. And I think that's why I called you. Did you remember? Do you remember if that was yeah, the first? I, I was. Um, at the time. Yeah. I was working with a colleague who was working with Alison uh, to, in a sense, reconcile the two opposing views of uh, scientists, if you like, within Natural England and the wider world. Uh, as public servants, of course, you have to respond to the public. That's that's what we do. Well, that's what we did. Um, and, and therefore, it was an attempt, I think, to actually see how far people could come together. And uh, Tony Burton, I think, was leading that. And he was he was getting somewhere, but we didn't get very far. And of course, then your uh, unfortunate court case came up. So, yeah, which kind of exposed the nature of the beast, I think, really, didn't it? It was... Um, it was um, yeah, not exactly. Well, your, your, your job was head of public engagement, wasn't it? And, um... Yeah, and my job at the time was reconnecting people to nature. Yeah. And that, and with a predisposition of um, being, if you like, a, an amateur forager, uh, whatever words you want to put on it, um, 
I was very sympathetic to any means to enable people to reconnect to nature. So a lot of it was down to personal preference, their people's own histories, what they're exposed to, who inspires them, and, and how more people could become more inspired by nature. Because I think it was David Attenborough who said, um, um, if you don't care for nature, you know, nobody's going to protect it. But the way to care for nature is to actually um, feel as if you belong to it. Uh, and so those kind of vibes were very strong in me. And I came from a countryside agency background where uh, recreation, landscape and people's access to land were meat and drink. Whereas the merger with Natural England was with English Nature, whose job was to uh, preserve species and habitats. And in some senses, I think the, the philosophical merger never worked out. There were still the two camps within the organisation. So in a sense, one of my roles was trying to reconcile um, what seemed to be perhaps the irreconcilable um, views and, and philosophies. But it, it was it was unfortunate that you were the uh, meat in the sandwich, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I still, yeah. I haven't quite processed all of that. Um, but... I think the, the the thing that the thing that throughout that and ongoing just thinking about conservation as a as a as a as a thing, as in you know as a cultural thing and 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 as a um, you know these organisations that are set up to pursue the, the ideology of it. What I still can't really get my head around is that nobody seems to. Um, Pay any attention to, to the core aims of the Convention on Biodiversity, because you know you've just said mm. that Natural England was set up to, or their objective was to conserve species and habitats. But you know the Convention on Biodiversity did, did a fantastic. Nature. Sorry, English Nature, yeah, and then becoming Natural England later, yeah. Uh, but the Convention on Biodiversity beautifully squared the circle, in my opinion, by by saying you know aim one, we want to conserve genetic resources, i.e. species. Aim two, we want to develop sustainable use for genetic resources. And, and, and you know, the person that pointed that out to me was um, uh, someone that worked for Plant Life years ago. And I said, well, hang on a minute, can I just, just ask, does that mean let's develop sustainable use because you know what people are like and if we don't, they'll, they'll ruin it. Um, although it would be better if they left it alone. She said, no, it doesn't mean that. I said, so what you're saying is it means as a, as a methodology for conserving species, we should develop these sustainable uses because that will mean that we, as you say, as David Attenborough said, you know, we, we care for it, we value it. Therefore, we've woven it into our, by weaving, it, weaving things into our cultural fabric, that cultural fabric then becomes a safety net that, that, that means we will be aware and we will fight to protect and, and, and we'll make sure that things don't go away. And yet, all of these years later, because that was 1992, I believe, that the Convention on Biodiversity mm. was signed up to by all of these different nations, we still have something like Natural England and, and all these other conservation bodies whose primary objective is sort of banning things and keeping people off land, rather than seeing that re-engaging people with land and species is, is the only way that we're going to do including David Attenborough, I hasten to add, like his, his big uh, thing that he released recently on on Netflix, at the end of it, he says, and now we get to the solution, boys and girls. What you need to do is 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 uh, rewild everything and eat everything that's grown in a lab. 
Like, oh no. So this is the answer. Dear God, you know. Like, so unfortunately, I'm not with David. Hmm. Yeah. Um, my background was obviously um, from a very early age, um, being allowed to wander wherever I wanted to go. And I think once you get that into your head, it's very hard to unthink it. So, yeah. you know, in my professional life, and uh, obviously I'm retired now, but throughout that, um, that was always my guiding philosophy, if you like, that I appreciated nature. I wanted to know more about nature, but the only way I could get to, to know more about nature was to be in it. And I, I think having had a taste of that, and we will talk about Finland, and we all talk about Scotland, I hope, uh, once you've had a taste of that, it's very hard to put it back in the box. And so I'm very anti-prevention of things. I'm, I'm more to encourage people who want to engage on that journey because it's a lifelong journey rather than being put off or curtailed or in some way demonstrated against. It's it's the opposite to, to my personal philosophy, I must admit. So uh, a difficult reconciliation through many years. Yeah, well, you know, I think I think it's the difference between ideology and and an actual way of life. You know, when when you when you start producing ideology, you end up in a, talking to yourself into all kinds of weird abstractions that, that don't work out in practice. But um, yeah, I think I think your your early experience is yeah, and it was it was one of those things where um, I mean it was helped by uh, my father knowing a lot about nature, which was kind of unusual. Um, so he he was very much and still is. He's ninety five now. Um, still is a, a, a keen bird watcher. So a lot of his childhood, and he grew up during the the depression, um, and he wandered around what is now the Vale of York, which is a great uh, arable landscape when it was derelict. And the fields were full of birds and, and he could wander where he wanted. He used to get out on his bicycle and go everywhere. Um, and they kind of he imbued that spirit of adventure into me. And also I had on tap someone who could identify all the things I was collecting in jam jars in ponds um, or fishing out of streams or, you know, bringing home various plants and things. So he, he would give me all that knowledge. And I think that is very unusual to actually have that degree of uh, knowledge on tap at a very early age. And yeah. to a certain extent, that passes through generations. So I can now teach that to my children who are now grown up and adults. Um, but without that stage in your formative years, it becomes very difficult to reconnect with nature. And in a heavily urbanized country, which is what we are, and you know, over 90% of the population lives in towns and cities, um, we're losing that essential contact with nature, which is, I think we'll probably get on to talk about this as well. It's good for our soul. It's yeah. good for our mental health. It's good for our physical health to actually make those connections uh, and to carry that through your entire life. So foraging for us, you and I, and maybe others listening, is, is one of those essential routes to that kind of knowledge sharing, sharing of landscapes, careful landscapes, careful plants, careful biodiversity that you wouldn't normally get in an everyday existence. So there's got to be a trigger, there's got to be a starting point. And to actually promote both that knowledge journey, 
but also more importantly, having access to land in which to engage in this educational landscape is vital. Yeah. Well, that's where, I mean, uh, we'll, we'll go back and forth a bit, I think, but, but that, that's what you're, even though you're retired, you're, you're still doing stuff, right? So you, you're working for the National Trust on a... Um, I'm, I'm an uh, elected member of the Council of the National Trust, which is right. yeah. the yeah. group of people that actually uh, has oversight of the trustees who set the policies and the policies are implemented by the executive of the National Trust. So it's a, a three-way cycle here. Um, yeah. but, but, but it's a, a position I really enjoy, being able to get in with a, uh, closely in with a bunch of people that I've always admired ever since I was the Deputy Secretary, we'll have to pause here, the Commons Open Spaces and Footpaths Preservation Society, which is my first job after graduating. And that body was one of the first conservation bodies in the UK, founded in 1865. And uh, its business was to preserve the last remaining commons from enclosure. Now, if you look at the stock of commons we've got left today, most of those commons are either sites of special scientific interest or national nature reserves. So they're really high reservoirs of biodiversity. But if, if all those commons have been enclosed in the way which history was beginning to set out, uh, we wouldn't have even these little bits of nature left in the country. Everything would have been turned into agricultural land through the Enclosure Acts. So I felt very happy working for a body like that. And I learned so much about the founders of the National Trust, Octavia Hill and Robert Hunter, and the legal journeys they'd been on to uh, save the last remaining commons. Robert Hunter, for instance, spent 10 years trying to preserve Epping Forest from being cut down and turned into arable land. Uh, Octavia Hill invented rights of air and exercise for the uh, people in, in urban London living in coal smoke filled tenements who had no green space whatsoever. They couldn't even go and sit in a graveyard because they're all fenced off and locked up. So she was one of those pioneers that gave us things like green belts, which, you know, without green belts, there would be no penumbra for many cities uh, of uh, unbuilt places. And uh, her and Hunter carried on their uh, joint ideas into the formation of the National Trust, which at the time was primarily aimed at, at finding green space for people to, to wander in. And the most obvious places were the commons in and around places like London, which were rapidly being built on by back-to-back uh, -back housing developers. So it was a, an interesting way into a deeper understanding of how history shapes our landscape and how our landscape is so important to the things we do in it and who does things in it. So uh, I guess that formative process was essential to my understanding of a good and better future um, for all of us. And in this country, particularly England, um, rather than Scotland, which went a different way with its uh, access laws, uh, we still haven't got that right of access to the landscape of the country. Uh, and it's a very big shame. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, th th I guess the National Trust are, are, are 
or, or those those early beginnings that, that you were talking about there people fighting for common lands that that that, that grows out of the same um, stem I guess as the um, all of the uh, campaigns in the 19th century for rambling rights and and um, yeah the the, the the Commons Preservation Society was the kickoff point um, and it was a bunch of people who were very, very influential in Victorian society. Uh, it, and they were the people who were, if you like, the influencers of their age. And so their route to influencing legislation was one of their primary uh, motivations. So stopping the Enclosure Acts from gobbling up more commons um, was a legislative process. But fighting for individual commons and individual commoners was where they started. But they were they were very well connected people. Um, Octavia Hill uh, was less well connected, but she was passionate, and so she was an orator. She was a writer, so she took, if you like, the uh, influencing route via written substance and produced paper after paper saying that people ought to have rights of air and exercise, that they ought to change the law about um, graveyards to actually open up graveyards. So people in the East End of London who were green space deficient, deficient um, could actually go and sit somewhere. But she evolved as a, uh, she was a, she was a landlord, landlady for um, tenement housing, which she saw a mission to actually improve. And, she was um, uh, associated with John Ruskin. He gave her the money to buy up tenement buildings to actually improve the lives of the tenants. Wow. And in so doing, she created um, green spaces for uh, children to play in using John Ruskin's money. He didn't know about it. All he wanted was a profit on his investment of 5%. Um, so she managed to manipulate Ruskin's money into producing a, a whole set of both environmental and artistic improvements in people's lives. And it's, and it's that early beginnings that you can now see translated into the uh, substance of the National Trust's work and uh, how it carries on into the future as a landowner and, uh, and uh, a body which is promoting access in the way that very other few bodies are actually doing. Well, I think I think the, 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 what you say about the the origins, you know, I think I think the roots and foundations of things they do carry the DNA and the and the integral qualities. It's, it's you know it's difficult to start out one way and then have a different thing about you like a hundred years later, unless you really dig down into those roots and, and get it out. Like as people yeah. are trying to do now decolonization and all that sort of thing to say well man we're, we're 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 tainted with these attitudes we're tainted with these mindsets these worldviews we have to do some work to get rid of them but if you start out on a right footing like this that's uh, that's another yeah, thing and, and i think in in every decision that has to be made and um it is an attitude of mind so if you're a landowner like the national trust you have to think about what actions will actually meet the criteria of being for people, for nature, and for heritage? So how can you make a decision that is equally uh, respectful and mindful of those three different things? 
And I think that that is a kind of gift that more landowners could actually usefully use in their resource planning. National Trust does it because it has a constitution which has been very, very carefully thought through. And if you start thinking in terms of how can I take this blob of land and turn it into something which benefits people, the landscape, nature and its heritage, whether that's built heritage or natural heritage, you begin to think in a completely different way. And I think that is probably where we need to get to. And to a certain extent, um, states like Finland and the administration in Scotland, maybe one day it will be a state, um, I think with their rights of access rules, um, they have to also think in a different way because you can't do something which will then be inimical to the interests of the other parts. That then drives solution generation and creative solutions to what might otherwise be problems, but then tries to satisfy all aspects. That's a good way of thinking about land management. I think it's a brilliant way of thinking, but, 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 but what, what, what I immediately thought when you, when you listed those criteria is that this is, this is the heart and soul of any kind of indigenous land management. You, you, yeah. you would never have an indigenous exactly. people who can, oh no, no, it's just about nature. Oh no, it's just about people. Oh no, it's, you, you can't. Those, those ways of thinking always encompass all three of those elements. Mm. And I was really interested in, in listening in on some of your last podcasts about um, the indigenous native landscapes and the philosophy of how people regard land in, and what it produces. And all the things that I was involved in in terms of common land, where common lands, it's difficult to understand, but commons are always owned by somebody for mm -hmm. which other people have rights to do something. Mm -hmm. But the rights they can do things with are all the natural produce of the soil of that land, yeah. which is an interesting legal concept in any case. Um, but it's, it's, you know, a thousand years old, this kind of concept, and probably earlier than that. It does go back to those indigenous times when there were no boundaries, there were no fences, everything was a common, and you treat things with the degree of respect that any nomadic people would. Um, we still have this in our legal structure today, that commons exist where somebody owns land and over which somebody else has rights. Uh, and I think it's very instructive and it's a really, really good model about how to proceed in, in our modern world to create more commons, what I call a new commons movement, which is yeah. in some senses an unenclosure movement because all this land was probably enclosed at some time in the past and to actually get back to that different way of thinking about how we treat land. I, I think it's so fascinating. I mean, it, as you say, although, although um, common rights of common, i.e. rights to do things or, or use things that, that, that are on a piece of land are separate from, from land ownership. Um, but nevertheless, if you trace it far back enough, they would have been one and the same because you'd just have the people that live in a certain place and they would well number one not have a concept of land ownership and 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 then all of those rights and so on would be in place um i just think um 
it's kind of fascinating that the 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 one is preserved even though the other has has gone into this realm of private property but there's there's still this this um thing of, of people having an a, a legally protected right to um to do stuff on land and to do, draw on certain resources I, I think it is i don't know it's it's like there's a bit of a tussle going on on the one hand you know, you know private property goes forward and and takes control but this other thing maintains in is maintains its position or, or is, is actually even legally protected you know even even someone like william william the conqueror coming in he much as he's the conqueror and he's he's a despot and all this sort of stuff he couldn't there's only so far he could go you know he did terrible things but he wasn't able to just tackle that he wasn't able to say oh no this is too much we can't have these people thinking they have a right to you know it took another 900 years in some cases well it all starts in the in the 18th century doesn't it and then carries on into the 19th all the enclosures but you know that still stayed untouched for that long i, I just think it's a very strong thing you know that the the, uh, the rights of common yes if you think back to the uh the legal system we have there is there is a, a role in that called the master of the roles um lord denning used to inhabit that role for many years um i used to go into uh, the high court to listen to some of his judgments on common land and uh, they were always fascinating especially delivered in a very strong hampshire burr um but the master of the roles is actually the master of the manorial roles so the roles that um uh, delineated land, who owned what, uh, who had rights over what. Um, they were all recorded and are still there. There's these these original roles are still there, rolled up uh, in a vast library of land ownership um, that goes back through the legal system. So that, that survey, the Doomsday Survey that William the Conqueror initiated was really about collecting knowledge about who owned what so he could tax them. Um, but it also incorporated those who held rights to do various things over mm -hmm. that land as well. So all that system was inherited from the Anglo-Saxons, because they were from uh, Europe, a word we probably can't mention anymore. But they, they brought their folkland uh, institutions with them and put them in place in, in England and Wales, not Scotland, but in England and Wales. So the common land system probably arose with them um, more than it did with the William the Conqueror and the Normans, although they had their own feudal system as well. So the, the two things merged in a pan-European way and we inherited the legal constraints of that. But how that golden thread of history has survived through to the present day, what I could say to any landowner, would you like to create a new common by granting me or you or somebody else the right to pick wild mushrooms over their land? As long as you draw it on a map and submit it, you can now create a new common. So that golden thread of history lives through to the present day. And I think um, I've had this idea for a long time about creating new commons wow. to, ca to carry forward that history but also to do the idea into action type of journey. 
So you have the idea and you put it into something active and then it that cements itself in place for future generations. Yeah, I'd love those kind of ideas, really, making them happen. Um, well, so it's a long-cherished ambition, Miles, to actually create new commons. Well, I think it's fantastic. And the thing is, I'm, I'm becoming aware, just for people that I've been in touch with and, and people that other people I know have, have been in touch with, that there are more and more um, people in this position of owning large bits of land who um, are in roughly the same kind of sensibility as the one that, that we're occupying. I'm thinking, you know, what, what could I do with this responsibility that I have for this big bit of land that's most beneficial? You know, and, and there's, there's a couple of them I'm thinking of that we ought to have a conversation with because they might be quite open to what you're saying. But I know of, of, of lots of other that I'm, I'm not in touch with. I, I do think it's, and even even like um, Simon Fairley from the um, who, who does the Land Magazine, which is which has been looking at land reform and, and planning reform for years, he said similar things. He said, you know, it, it may be that us uh, scruffy hippie types might pull our resources and and get more land. You know that we can. Uh, apply the, the ways of thinking about land management and, and, and you know, land-based culture on. And that may be a way that, that land reform happens. He said, but actually there's, there are these aristocrats and filthy rich people out there that, that are probably going to also be a big part of the equation. They might not give the land away, but they may well accept a lot of input regarding how that land's going to be used and managed. And, and, and what you're suggesting is fantastic. Right. The, the benefit of new commons is, is, again, it goes back to that, how can we think differently about land? Uh, and new commons, as a principle, makes you think about sharing that land, yeah. not just you know, having to put more and more fences up and more signs and more notices, and more CCTV cameras to protect it, but how can you beneficially share it? So once you change that kind of mindset, you, you start from a very different premise. Uh, and that premise I think is ideally suited who have the mental space and capacity and philanthropy to actually want to do that. That's the first hurdle to get up. You must want to do this because the consequences of sharing your land rather than just having it to yourself are you know, manifold. But um, you don't have to give up your land. You still remain as the owner of that land. You simply grant a right of common to somebody else or others, uh, other commoners that you create um, by giving them a right of common. In the old days, of course, you could do this by prescription. You could go onto someone's land and you could pick their wild mushrooms or their berries or whatever. Uh, and you could, over 20 years or so, create a new right of common. But that has been cut out by legislation. So now you have to be granted a right of common by the landowner. So it so has to be cut out. It has been cut out, yeah. When? Uh, the, the various Commons Acts from 1965 onwards. Ah, and, well, um, right, but 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 Mrs. Tease Hillman in um in the New Forest in the uh, when would that be? case against the Forestry Commission. Yeah. So that yeah. was resolved because she could prove that she had um, been 
gathering mushrooms from this area of the new forest for more than 12 years on, every year and and therefore um she then had a right so i think it's called a customary right maybe it's not the same as yeah no it is it is it is exactly that it's a customary right yeah slightly different legally because there are different acts of parliament operating over the crown lands and the forest but uh, let's not get lost in minutiae it's exactly that miles it's it's actually having uh, a right to do something over somebody else's land the landowner doesn't give up the land but he has to give away or she has to give away something to share that landscape with and i think it's a yeah it's good for the soul i would say uh, it's good for people to, to give back in that way uh, and maybe at some point in the past um, the ancestors the ancestors took that land from everybody else so it's, it's even more nourishing for the soul in that respect yeah. and i think that would find a great chord in in many indigenous landscapes around the world as well yeah where people have been forced onto you know the north american example i guess they've been forced onto reservations rather than having the uh, communal ownership of um, uh, shared tribal landscapes elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, there's one thing I wanted to mention with regard to um, land ownership and then common rights and and the enclosures of the commons, because the 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 uh, the biggest finding for me that came out of my case with with Natural England, because I had to spend so much time poring over the various acts of parliament, which which people in most cases erroneously believe to be uh, ways that, that, that constitute foraging being illegal or commercial foraging in particular. Um, the, the, the conclusion I ended up with, particularly in reference to the Theft Act, is that um, wild plants and mushrooms do not have uh, private property status. At least while they're growing, mm. um, while they're growing on land, and the, and the, the, the four F's. A, pardon? The four F's: flowers, fungi. Um, Are you thinking of the to, what the law of the forest says? The four, the four F's. Yeah, think, exactly. I, yeah. So that's the. I think that is the point that it goes back to the law of the forest, where 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 um, the right to gather these things was was established. Um, and the weird thing about that is, again, that's William the Conqueror. So um, he, he's, he's uh, put that in place where, you know, you'll be hung for killing the king's deer, but everything else is up for grabs, apparently. But, but the point is, it still is. So under the Theft Act, it says anyone that gathers mushrooms or, or plants does not commit theft. And then there's this silly little caveat that says, unless he does it for commercial gain. But mm. earlier in the, in the thing, it says that it makes no difference in the case of theft, if you nick somebody's shoes because you want to wear them, or if you nick them because you want to sell them, it makes no difference. It's 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 theft. So it it it's not, nothing to do with it being theft, and it's nothing to do with the property status. They belong to someone else, not you. Um, and if you take them, it's theft. So anyway, that little caveat is unenforceable and has never been enforced. Mm. So it can be struck out and ignored. I think. So if we just take the first bit. Anyone that gathers mushrooms or plants does not commit theft. And it's quite simple. The reason they don't commit theft is because these things are not property. So I love that because it means, you know, the, the way I like to put it is they managed to enclose the commons, but they forgot to enclose the plants. They're still common goods. 
the plants yeah. and the mushrooms are still common good. So someone can try and get you off their land. And sorry, landowners, if this makes you feel nervous, but they cannot stop you from from uh, from picking mushrooms. And that, that means, you know, to be fair, someone can come into my garden and pick the dandelions on my lawn because they don't belong to me. Hmm. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting concept. But if you go to, um, if you like, progressive countries, and I will mention Finland because it's been a great um, shaper of my life and my thinking, um, you're actually encouraged to go out. They lament the fact that there aren't enough people to pick the mushrooms and berries and that um, there is no uh, ability in a country with a large land area and a small population. It's got a population about the size of Greater London. Um, there aren't enough people out there. So there is a, a, an annual lament that they have to bring in um, mushroom and berry pickers from um, as far away as South Korea uh, to come and pick, and Thailand to come and pick their berries up in the Arctic uh, Circle um, because there just aren't enough people doing it. So there's, there's an economic argument for, in countries like Finland to promote the foraging and commercialization of picking um, as much as there is a custom and practice which has been taught on grandmother's knee about how to treat the wild and, and we, uh, my, my Finnish adventure began in Rimini in Italy when I was interrailing around Europe as a youth uh, met a Finnish girl and she said uh, you know after a bit of chat you fancy coming back to my place I thought she meant the campsite, but actually it was a lesson in life. Finnish people are very literal. She actually meant, you want to come back to my place, a log cabin in the woods by a lake um, in Finland. So after three days, we arrived at this log cabin in the woods. And my life changed at that point wow. because it was just how you combine modern living with a cultural view which is living off the land in a very, very strong, educated and purposeful way that you treat the land as much as people would treat a common. So if the um, ecological carrying capacity of your lake or your woodland diminishes, you deliberately don't overdo it. You actually curtail your activities to match the carrying capacity of land and water. So there was a lot about that um, visit to Finland, as accidental as it was, um, that taught me so many good lessons that we would go out, we'd catch fish, we'd have crayfish, we'd have bendace, a protected species here, but the lakes were full of them. We would cook outside on birchwood fires, which themselves had been a product of sustainable forestry. So you don't, you don't manage your woodland just to chop it all down. You take out individual trees, you bring on individual trees for your grandchildren's wood supply. So a lot of the philosophy and practice combines in the mentality of Finnish people. And they, they regard landscape because they have access to all of their landscape that's uncultivated they regard it in a completely different way to the mental mindset of people in a developed country uh, like ours. And that, that is a real uh, mind turner in terms of 
how you think about your relationship to it and everything. The sheer freedom of it is something else. The thrill of freedom to be able to go out and do all these things without the concern and worry that you're doing something wrong ecologically or you're doing something offensive against anybody else's interests is a really interesting one. And the, there is no law in Finland about a right of access. It's just custom and practice. There's no state law that says you can do this. It's just that it is accepted that it's, it's an essential part of statehood. This is your nation. You should be able to belong to it in a very practical and sensible and ecologically well thought out way. And oh, by the way, if you, if you manage to have a bumper crop of bilberries, the state will always buy them off you. Or if you have a bumper crop of um, mushrooms, they'll buy them off you as well, um, because they can then sell them on in, in various um, products that they're very proud of as well. Yeah. So it, it's a country which I can't praise enough in terms of how it gives back to its citizens the things that make nationhood and statehood become a living part of everybody's existence. Even if you live in the middle of downtown Helsinki, you will know somebody who has a cottage in the country that you can go to for the long summers and engage in all these different types of what we would call foraging activities. But actually, it's just land guardianship that they're very acutely aware of. And that, that penetrates into every single person. Well, and don't, don't an awful lot of them have those summer houses, though. Yes, it, it, indeed. They've got one in their family. They've, they've got a summer house that they go to somewhere in remote Finland. Yeah, exactly. So you've got to put in two camps. Yeah. So um, in a sense, the entire land is a common and they share in it and participate in it in ways we can't because all our land was basically enclosed apart from a few scraps. Uh, so we lost our rural connections. So the big population change through the enclosure movement was rural depopulation and an increase in urban population. Yeah. And uh, in places like Finland, they, they maintained that foot in both camps. So although there was a flight to big cities, uh, which is a modern thing, they still retain those roots in, in the landscape of rural places and they still migrate back to those places. And that's how you think a city mind and a, a country mind. And you carry both with you at all times. And it's a, it's a fantastic blend. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, it, it, it's, it's like the difference, the difference for us is, is just how people move to the city. It was, it was so violent here, wasn't it? Like, it wasn't people just thought, oh, I fancy moving to the city. It's just like you kicked off your, your land. And Yeah, and there was um, the old adage of an acre and a cow uh, and your common rights was the peasant landscape. So um, your acre and a cow gave you the ability to survive and the common rights uh, or use of the commons around you enabled you to have those extra elements, like whether it was fuel wood, uh, rights of estovers, or whether it was collecting wild foods, they, they augmented uh, and enhanced just the survivability. Once you take away the commons, uh, 
you lose the ability to, it's a tipping point, you lose the ability to survive. And of course, rural depopulation through uh, changes in agricultural practices, the swing riots uh, when agricultural machinery came in and, and cheap, cheap agricultural labors were no longer needed. Um, Napoleonic soldiers coming back from the wars with France uh, took agricultural jobs. So there was a lot of rioting going on in the countryside around that time as well. So inevitably there would be a drift of places where you could get work and sustenance because there was none to be had in many parts of the, the countryside. And rural depopulation took place en masse. There was a huge numbers of people just wandering about, which is why in a sense the poor laws were introduced to move people on from parish to parish. And um, that process still continues today with social security payments. It began then. So yeah, history is very important to actually discover the threads and the movements that inform our modern lives. And if you don't understand those kind of threads and movements, I think it's really instructive to actually try and learn more about it. Well, to me, the the image I, I have really strongly is is, is a, that we've been uprooted. You know, it's interesting that you said that the people in Finland they maintained their rural roots in spite of moving to the city, but like we were we were just yanked up by the roots, and you know, and those those cultural. It's why we don't have um, cultural foraging here. It's because the people that held that knowledge were dragged into the cities and, and then the next generation, there's absolutely no opportunity for that to be passed on because no green spaces. And, and so it's dead within a couple of generations. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I mean, I think it's, um, I don't know, I, I, I just feel like on the one hand, it's great that we have conversation that's, that's sort of laden with hope and positive examples like, like Finland. You know, but this 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 kind of gaping wound at the heart of it is is also needs needs addressing. But in, I think. You know, that, but in a in a positive sense, you're an educator. Yeah. Um, uh, I can be an educator. Um, you're a seasoned, knowledgeable expert. I, I'm never going to get to the foothills of your knowledge base, Miles, and I don't intend to, which is good news. Um, but what I can do is relay to people the journey that I took part in. Yeah. You know, I was inspired by Richard Maybe's book, Food for Free. I'm very pleased to be able to call Richard now a friend. Um, inspired by Roger Phillips' book, which actually gave you fantastic identification. Um, yeah. So you could actually identify the things you were looking for. He just died last week, did you hear, Roger he Phillips? He did, yes. Very sad. But, um, but he was one of those educators as well because of his photography. And uh, Richard maybe was an educator because he introduced me to ethnobotany, um, which again was a missing part of my education. My father taught me lots of things, but I didn't really have the, uh, the ethnobotanical knowledge. Yeah. So um, in that sense, when I um, got around to writing Eat Wild, um, it was about the elements from Finland where we took things from lakes, captured them by nets, captured them in traps, captured them by fishing lines or whatever, and, and took berries from the forest and fungi. But we cooked it. The main aim of this was to actually have a great meal 
on a log fire by the side of a lake and um, try and watch the sun go down, which it didn't really go down very much in the summer. Um, but that kind of round the campfire sense of taking something from the wild, cooking it in fantastic ways, enjoying it in a space where people were happy and relaxed. Saunas helped very much in that respect as well. Um, was was part and parcel of me writing Eat Wild because I wanted to actually get easy to identify, safe to identify, safe to eat, things which would inspire people by their sheer awesome taste. So shock and awe would come through tasting things. And if you could cook them over a log fire or whatever on the beach in a safe place of your own making, um, so much the better. So, so that book reflected my kind of journey as a, an amateur stumbling into this stuff, but being excited and thrilled by the taste of these things. I mean, you and I now know the taste of these things is so very different from shopping. And I was trying to get over to people that this isn't shopping. <laughs> this is actually a voyage of discovery every time you go out. And it's a voyage of discovery for your taste buds every time you try and cook something. And I, I eschew weights and measures. I eschew oven times. I, I don't want to have that kind of orderliness to this. I want it to be wild and random and for people to learn by their mistakes. Because if you learn by your mistakes, you're going to remember it and you're going to become creative in your adaptive ways of actually uh, foraging and cooking and sharing that knowledge with others. So Eat Wild is really about sharing again, mm. sharing an experience and passing it on and inspiring people. So the numbers of people I meet are everyday people, plumbers, electricians, you know, people who work in schools, people who work in uh, hospitals, um, and they have a desire to go and forage. And when somebody comes to me with that instigation, then I will take them out and we will forage and we will talk about how to cook it and we'll probably cook it and eat it together. So every year, for instance, uh, COVID years accepted, I do a wild food dinner for Henley Sailing Club, which I, I'm a member of. And um, they're people who would never look at wild food normally. So they all appreciate and want to know more about how this stuff can happen. Some of it actually comes from the car park at the sailing club you'd be pleased to know, of which um, I did a BBC interview there on the radio uh, and said, look, meet me in the car park. And he said, OK, where are we going? And I said, well, you're in it. You're in the car park. There's 14 different types of edible food within about 10 foot of you. Um, and this guy was, was amazed that you could pick up a, uh, a cuckoo flower leaf and nibble it. He actually screamed on uh, live on radio because the pepperiness hit him about five seconds after he nibbled it. But those kind of educational elements, which are fun and easy and safe, uh, and um, particularly easy to identify in the world of mushrooms, uh, is, is the conveyance that I was particularly interested in having. Well, I should say for anyone listening that's confused with you saying eat wild. So we produced a three course, issues yeah in, yeah, in, in uh, 2020 we got some funding and just it was it was kind of partly because of the pandemic like how could we get people eating wild food when we can't get out and talk to them face to face yeah. uh, so you had written a book 
some time ago. When was that? When, when did your book come out? Crikey. Well, let me have a look. <laughs> uh, 2010. 2010, of the same title, Eat Wild. Um, but we like the title so much, we, we had to um, come and ask if you minded us calling the zine the same thing. So that's the, that's the, uh, that's the explanation for there being... There's actually quite a few things called Eat Wild, it turns out, when I started Googling it. There's some, there's some uh, organisation for the promotion of wild game that's called uh, Eat Wild. Um, but anyway, yeah, it's your book and our zine. <laughs> Happy to do that sharing. Yeah. Because I think at the end of the day, it's, the thing that excites me is the ability to share these things. Yeah. And, you know, um, reading your book, which obviously blows my mind in many ways because I can't I can't believe that you've acquired that much knowledge about all these things that are all around us all the time and um, I'm always staggered when I dip into it it's it's one of my favorite tomes to actually try and think my way into I don't know what this thing is, but I'm sure that Miles has written about it. Um, my um, my biological knowledge of, of plants is is um, way behind yours. So again, it's it's finding those easy pathways in your own time and space to this kind of experience. But at the end of the day, it is about sharing stuff, um, sharing the land, sharing knowledge, and sharing the excitement. I would say. Yeah. of that kind of freedom to be able to do this stuff. And, you know, I was trained as a geologist at university. I did geology and geography. And always when I was doing my geological stuff, I was looking into the very deep past. Yeah, well, yeah. Particularly lessons of, it makes me laugh, climate change. Um, my God, if you look at geological past, you'll see climate change written through every 10 foot of rock in a cliff face. Um, catastrophic climate change, I should say. So uh, all those kind of lessons of deep history uh, and how we uh, progress as a very latter, come, Johnny come lately type of species in that mix is always very um, philosophically interesting because I think we need to be aware of our own extinction. Mm. 90, 98 to 99% of all species that have ever lived are now extinct. I can't believe that we can actually think that we won't go extinct at some point, given that well, track record of geological history. Um, we have, we it, have it's, yeah. it's sobering, mm. and I think we need that degree of humility as well that goes with it, um, because uh, geology taught me a lot about... Um, how things evolve, how things change, how things move through time, and uh, how we ought to be mindful of the uh, rather violent universe we actually inhabit. But um, that's a whole new podcast. Well, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it makes me think, I recently read a book called uh, Homo Botanicus, where, where the guy gets into a bit of stuff around um, climate change and our not so deep past but it's 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 fairly deep you know 200,000 years and whatnot um but he he puts forward the theory that we've actually staved off um an ice age I think his point was to do with forest clearance but but the the fact that we to begin with um increased the amount of uh, carbon going up into the atmosphere 
we could have been we could have been in for an extra, another ice age by now. But obviously, we've now tipped the balance a bit too far in yeah. the other direction. Well, I, I, nobody really understands how ice ages take place. Um, it's just the regularity of it. I think was his point. There's been there's been bang on schedule one every X number, to, and we're kind of due one now. So yeah, that was yeah. Cool. I mean, geologists talk about glacial epochs, and they talk about interglacial epochs, the bits in between the ice ages. Well, I think it's quite right. We're probably we are in an interglacial epoch probably now, but again, nobody understands the mechanism of how ice ages start and, and end. Um, but yeah, you know, the sobering thought is that um, something called the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis contemplates that a mere 12 or 13,000 years ago, uh, we were hit by a comet which wiped out most of the northern hemispheres, fauna, flora, and everything, caused all the ice sheets to melt and catastrophic flooding. So, oceanic levels have risen 400 foot since that period. Uh, and that is really big type of climate change. That is really major extinction level stuff. And it was within the last 13,000 years of human existence. So well, there's, a lot, there's a lot of geological history that I think probably if people thought about it more would have a much stronger bearing on how we sensibly think about our current present and how we can make things better. My, my theory about life has always been, let's make it better. And um, I wrote a book about Octavia Hill, again, going back to the National Trust Foundation, where she, she had this expression about um, whispers of better things. Unless people have access to land, they can't put themselves in a soulful enough space to actually have thoughts about uh, a betterment, a better place to live. And she lived in a really cruddy era when um, London was filled with coal smoke and people were dying in the streets and they, they had none of the things about air and exercise that she, she knew from her rural past were the, the beautiful things in life. So she was really keen on pushing for more space for people and getting more access to nature and the beauties of nature. She was very much in that kind of soulful position of wanting people to appreciate the beauties of nature, which does carry through into many um, current uh, landscape designations, areas of outstanding landscape value, uh, areas of outstanding natural beauty, national parks, definitions in their own right carry this this thought about beauty into them and it largely came out of octavia hill's head she was thinking those thoughts about even in a tenement slum in darkest courts of london you could see a blackbird singing on a sunlit chimney spot pot and and that to her was a, an epitome of um, in a religious age god's beauty yeah and gifts to people yeah, well, I think, you know, I think she was she was speaking as a grounded human, though. I mean, it, 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 it's wonderful and all, but like I said earlier, you know, it, it connects to every indigenous culture that's, that's ever been that she thought like that because she was yeah. she was speaking from that that space, which which is a space of, of, of liberty, I would say. She's not yeah. she's not occupying power. These these kind of power 
positions and and neither is she sitting under them you know she's she's out from under them and thinking in the space that you do because you know she's embodying what she's talking about she's sitting in these spaces and having the whispers of liberty about the the the, the, the things that that could come yeah so um well you know it does make me very um cheerful to think of the national trust as having these kind of roots um hopefully it can produce fruit in accordance to them um well Yes, and, and, and obviously uh, I have a kind of mission at the moment to create, and particularly after COVID's restrictions and the scenes, the disgraceful scenes you saw about people being arrested in London parks for sitting too long on a park bench, that kind of nonsense stimulated in me the idea that one of Octavia's hills was for green belts around towns and cities. Um, but why not have green belts around every village, every town and every city to actually create what I've, what I've termed a national healthscape? She was very well, much involved in health. Her grandfather was one of the founders of the sanitation movement when, right, he, found out, right. when he found out that people were dying from drinking polluted water in, in London wells. Yep. So she carried his ideas into her thinking about spaces not just for nature, spaces for humans and nature, and um, that the, the important parts of that were actually to benefit people's long-term health, mental health and physical health. So creating a national yeah. healthscape, as much as creating national parks would seem to be uh, a need we all might be able to share in. And even if, we will never have a uh, legal right to land access as the one in Scotland or the one in Finland embodies um, for various reasons. I think there will be an increasing demand for more access to land for those urban populations because not everybody can flee the city and, and buy a second home in the countryside. Um, so why not make landscapes around those towns and cities yeah. or even villages? Um, have access to those places to do the things that give freedoms and expressions of creativity or foraging or whatever you want to call it, uh, air and exercise, food growing, just making better landscapes and a feeling of belonging to the place you call home. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's another, there's another possible level that, uh, well, another sphere of activity that take that a bit further which I keep thinking about. Um, I mean, it's partly because we've run a commercial foraging operation for 18 years now. So you get you get a feel of how many different harvests there are, a bit like sort of fleshing out Alison Dyke's PhD, as we mentioned in the in the beginning there. Um, and but also the scale of some of the harvests, you know, there's some things that there's an awful lot of, e.g., hawthorn berries and, and acorns. Yeah. Mm. And we we've Tentatively, and then it kind of got shut down by the the, the, the COVID thing. In, in 2020, we um, a few of us got together and harvested acorns, and we're we're, we're also getting together to process them. The, the acorn harvest was rubbish this year, so we couldn't do it again. But <clears throat> I'm thinking about this as, as something that we have the potential to recreate culture that really pulls people together, not just that we go and have a wander somewhere mm. and, and we do our private individual things which I'm you know not saying anything against that obviously 
but like it's it's another level when people are in a routine that, that every year we get together and we gather the acorns or every last year every year we have we gather this you know we make some herbal teas or and people i just think that's that's another level that that would take us back to where we used to be because you know you read these books about um indigenous cultures and that's that's what it was all about you know the whole rhythm of life it's like breathing in yeah. and breathing out you know now you do this now you do that now you're here now you're there and i just think that it's so in our dna that it's not just like a i don't know a trendy thing to do or a terribly fascinating thing to do or however else you might couch it this is deeply mm. biological to go somewhere yeah. every year with other people and do the same thing that you did last year and then who knows we might get to the point where in 150 years time you can talk about how your great grandfather did this but that's the thing that makes me feel so culturally bereft is i can't mm. talk about anything much i could say elderberry wine so i'm proud like you are with your dad um to say you know i've got some stuff from my um immediate ancestors some stuff mm. but nothing like what what would have been the case that, that across the board you know many different species in this landscape many different places in this landscape do we have a routine a heritage and a, and a, 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 an association of, of 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 roots and ancestry with regard to you know and i think i think we just need to be bold and say um you know we want access to land but you know what, what are we going to do when we're there you know i think i think mm. let's let's yeah, get yeah. busy and and yeah. and um and create these these um um, well, cultures again. Yeah, know. and I, I, I've had a long vibe um, ever since I worked very pleasurably with an organisation called Common Ground. Oh yeah, who, who invented local distinctiveness. And Fantastic! They wrote that book, didn't they? What was what was their book? Was it called Common Ground? No, it was called England in particular, wasn't it? England in particular, exactly. So Wonderful. I worked for, for a long time with them. And my, my first book, um, sorry, my second book, Apple's Berkshire Cider, was inspired by their A to Z posters of local distinctiveness, because it was an A to Z book of pomology. So um, I'm very keen on, on creating new heritage, if you want to call mm. it that. Or new, new culture. Heritage, that's it, that's it. And, and uh, I actually um, won the Henry Ford European Conservation Award for Heritage <laughs> um, by promoting the idea of uh, creating new community orchards and uh, putting in place the actual stimulation from old heritage of new heritage. So for instance, one of the ideas was to go and scrump other people's apples um, as politely as you can, um, or to get them to give you their apples that they were otherwise going into the waste stream in their gardens. So I was scrumping the world's largest orchard, which is suburban gardens. And from that, I got an apple cider making press. And we started doing communal apple pressings long before it became trendy, I should add. This is a few years back. Um, and just getting, tapping into that thought action deed cycle so yeah. here's a good thought let's go and get the equipment let's go and make it happen and that has stimulated all sorts of different avenues for all sorts of different people and now of course there's a lot of people doing that kind of thing 
but it still comes back to the idea that we can positively and enthusiastically create new heritage. And if there are obstacles, you know, try and find a way around the obstacle. I've never been, um, I've never been stopped by anything uh, in terms of trying to find a way around what might be put up as a barrier. And uh, if you find enough people who are enthusiastic and like-minded, you can make these things happen. That's my great takeaway. You know, let's make more things happen. Despite governments, despite laws, despite rules, there are things that we can all do together to make life better. And I think if we don't, we miss our time on earth, really. If we don't make things better, what's the point? If we can't improve our own souls and, and help other people, then we're missing probably the biggest trick of life. Yeah, I love that, Duncan. I think that's a great thought to end on. Like, what's the meaning of life to make things better? Love it. 42. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like your answer better. Let's make things better. Yes, exactly.